I'm just going to preface this by saying that this is a special episode, and I mean that, and I hope that I don't get caught saying that too often, because this is one of those ones that really stands out. This is an episode between me and one of my new, dearest, closest friends on the planet, MC McDonald. MC happens to be an absolute brilliant PhD in philosophy and psychology and an expert on trauma who's done incredible research on trauma. But this is more than me talking to an expert. This is me talking to somebody who I love dearly and somebody who in my own personal life I spend countless nights staying up talking about the big questions of life. I've always wanted someone like MC to talk to, especially about philosophy and psychology. In my mind, I always pictured it as a older, wise man mentor figure coming into my life. So I was really caught off guard when that person happened to be a peer of my age who is brilliant and beautiful and had no scraggly beard. We met in kind of a funny way. Her publisher, Sounds True, hired us to do the audiobook recording for her new book, Unbroken, which comes out in March. We love Sounds True. We love working with them. So of course we said yes. Each day when Reese and her would emerge from the recording studio, Reese would kind of pull me aside and he'd say, hey, you should be friends with her. She is spectacular and the book is amazing. And that's what happened. This has been an explosive friendship. We are meeting once a week, regularly collaborating. I basically built a show around her expertise called Shitty Life Advice, which we do every Tuesday on YouTube, which I hope you check out. It is hilarious the way it's developing. But first and foremost, this episode is about trauma. And trauma is a topic that we've covered and talked about during the years of doing this show. My life has had its fair share of knocks and shakeups. And more so the listeners who have gathered around this show are some of the most beautiful, sensitive people who have also been through some pretty hard knocks. It's been tough over the years. It's been tough to look at people who have been through so much and to hold out hope for how they could heal or how they could recover. When I've heard their stories, when I've heard the things that they've been through, when I've heard what they're life looks like now as they're on their healing journey trying to live a fulfilled and full life despite the real world changes that the traumas have made in their life it's hard to remain hopeful one of the joys of meeting mc and of getting familiar with her work and hearing her thoughts and hearing from the research that she's done is a return of feeling hopeful again that healing is possible, that like the title of her book, you are not broken and the trauma response is working correctly and there is a way to heal from whatever you've been through. It just might take longer and might take a little bit more effort than you initially thought. This episode is a love letter to anyone who has ever been through the ringer and anyone who feels that they cannot return to a happy and healthy life. Without saying too much, I will just say that this episode pretty much covers the entire spectrum of what I hope every great episode of How to Human would cover. It's incredibly vulnerable and real and brilliant. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy re-listening to it. So without further ado, here is my dear friend and brilliant trauma researcher, MC McDonald. 
I love you. I love you too. I am so glad that you came into my life. Me too. I've actually, I have been calling into the universe for this friendship for so long. Me too. And I always thought that the psychology, philosophy, mentor friend that would come to my life would be a uh, older man. <laughs> I didn't know that it would be a very beautiful woman. But Here we are. but you are a friend I have been wanting for years. Oh, same. You make me cry. Good. <laughs> same. Same. And I feel like we've known each other for forever. Yeah. Yeah. Many, um, many I wish I had a voice. I don't have a voice. But I'm so grateful to be here and oh, um, to have Thank an official you. conversation with you. We've had many, many, many long conversations late into the night. Here's our public <laughs> conversation. Yay. You know the deal. I do. MC, who are you? I am a sparkly little soul riding around in this particular body trying to figure some stuff out. And what else? Brag a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait, wait. Yes, you are. Yes. Yes, you are a sparkly yeah. little soul. Yes. It's sparkly, you know it. Yeah, very sparkly. <laughs> I am a PhD trauma researcher, a college professor, an author, and a life coach. And you have studied both philosophy and psychology. Yeah. Which for me is like the greatest treat in the world. <laughs> and neuroscience. Just, just be able to call you up. This is why it's so wonderful to know you because so many people in so many spheres have, like I've been the outcast for that exact reason that I'm so interdisciplinary and bring in all these things because then you kind of don't fit in any area. Yeah, People are always looking at you sideways and saying like, well, you're doing that. Why are you here? Why are you in this space? So someone finding someone who appreciates it is super rare. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. This conversation, if nothing else, is a celebration of your book. Oh, thank you. That comes out. March 14th. March 14th. It's called Unbroken. The trauma response is never wrong. And where can we buy it? Anywhere that you can buy books. It's out with Sounds True Publishing. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite indie. It's available for pre-order right now. So we met through this book. We did. Officially. We did. Well, we met actually once before, but you didn't know that we met. Okay, tell me that one Which again. is weird. <laughs> you were doing a webinar on New Year's Eve, I think. Oh, square one. Yeah. Yes. Square one is sacred ground. And I saw it on socials, and I didn't have any plans. And I was like, this sounds... Like it might be life-changing. I went and I sent you an email afterwards because you had sent out some materials that you mentioned in the webinar that I've been using with clients that are just amazing. You have little calendars that you use to track habits and get people kind of back to ground zero when they're really struggling. I was sending those out, so I sent you a thank you note and then I didn't hear. <laughs> and then when... <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Which is fine. But then when it came time to do the book recording for the audiobook, I knew that you had just opened the studio. So I thought, hey, I'm going to see if we can do it there. Yeah, so we did your audiobook. Yep. Reese was the one in studio with you. Yep. And he was the one who first told me, like, this person's special. Oh. And you should yay. you should be friends with this person. Oh, yay. Thank yeah. you, Reese. And the book is really good. Oh. Yeah, Reese had to listen to the whole thing. Yes. Three days. <laughs> I want to do a book club with you. I would love that. Yes. I really want to do this with my group. Yes, I would love my, that. My Motley crew on Patreon, if you would like to join us. 100%. I would love if you would lead that book club. Oh my gosh, that would be an honor. I would love that. So this is a teaser. Yes. What are you about? Like, what are you here to do? I am here to change the way we think about trauma. We're doing it wrong. What specifically made you take that on as your task? It's a series of moments that come together and form. They felt at the time disconnected, but then they led me down this path 
that is so sure and has been so sure for so long. I was studying mourning in my master's degree, mourning and psychoanalysis, and I was studying that before my parents died. But my parents died, and I was studying this thing academically, which gave me a huge amount of comfort because I was looking at grief and mourning and what that looks like from psychoanalysis and philosophy and could really kind of dig in in a place that felt safe. When I went to do my PhD program, I wanted to study identity, the way that tragedy shapes identity. I pulled on trauma as sort of a case study because I kept hearing these stories of people who would say that they had this narrative, this self, this identity that unraveled when they had a traumatic experience or a tragedy. And I thought, okay, we need to get better about this. And I remember sitting on my couch in the New York Times, there was this front page picture of this veteran who had committed suicide. It was talking about, this was kind of before the 22 a day, the 22 push-ups challenge, all this stuff. There was not a lot of knowledge about how suicidal our veterans were. And I thought, man, this is avoidable. We've got to figure this out. We've been studying trauma since the 1800s. Like, what are we missing? So I dove in. And the first thing that I did was try to get the definition. What, what is trauma? And I found as soon as I peeled back that curtain that there's huge debate in the field of psychology about what a traumatic event even is. Then I started pulling everything, philosophy, psychology, psychoanalysis, and then dove into neuroscience. Like, we've got to figure this out. Can we back up a bit to identity? Yes. Yeah, okay. of course. So what'd you learn about identity specifically? I'll give you like the prompt from my life because I'm going to selfishly benefit myself from this. Please do. So I don't feel like a solid mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine a ton of other people do as well. I know people who do have a solid identity. Like yeah. Very much throughout life and throughout daily life, it almost feels like I'm still trying on personas and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how what I am what my desires are what my history is how they all are one thing Mm -hmm. and so if you listen to these conversations I think throughout the years that I've been doing this you might even hear me for sure trying on Mm -hmm. something different but for whatever reason maybe it's that I have interesting uniqueness about my experience Mm -hmm. but I don't think my experience is unique we're first sort of told who we are Mm -hmm. from an outsider right like our first identity is like oh you were such a sweet kid like you're such you're so this you're so that and i think that's maybe part of what my adolescent insanity Mm -hmm. was was going like i'm none of those things oh yeah all bets are off yeah this reminds me i was teaching this was an internship that i had when i was in college and we were doing philosophy at a charter school with like seven-year-olds and we were we we did I can't believe I I haven't thought about this in probably 15 years we were working on identity and we gave them these little tiles and all this art supply and we said okay kind of think about who you are who you want to be and then put something on the tile and we thought this was genius like we thought it was the best thing we could talk about identity we can do this all this stuff one student kind of immediately took off and hid in the corner and I crouched down and I sat with him and I was like, what's going on? You know, like how, how what, tell me what you're feeling. What's up? And he's like, I can't pin myself. He didn't say that language. I can't put myself in a box. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. I don't want to be in a no, box. No, either. totally. But I know that my identity is so probably unhealthily linked to some of the pain that I've had. For sure. Like 
I'd say half of my identity yeah. is you is the royal you. You cannot possibly know yeah. what it is like to be me. Yeah. Ooh, there's right? I feel that when you say yeah. that. Like there is no way you're walking around with what I'm walking around with. Yeah. 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 Pain can be so isolating. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to the original question that you had about identity. Please, yeah. Like, what is it? And I think like the, the I'm just searching in my head as we're talking, like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I think the best kind of metaphor I can come up with is that it's a tapestry. You have all these threads and some of them are stories other people tell about you. Right. There was a story that my mom always said that I laughed before you're supposed to laugh. I don't know what that means, but I guess there's a point at which kids usually laugh. And I laughed earlier than that. I've always held on to that as like, this is a piece of my identity. And then there's also stories that feel false, but you don't really have a lot of autonomy or agency over your story until you start to encounter yourself in the world and to behave and make choices. And then the tapestry starts to get even more varied in its colors. One of the things that happens with pain and trauma is that we we see a lot of similar colors in other people's tapestries, right? So everyone you're around has little stories that are funny from when you were a kid or things you did that were stupid when you were 10 or whatever. But when there's pain stuff, and especially when it's early, you don't see a lot of those colors mirrored in, in other people's tapestries. And so you learn to hide them and you feel like you are alone and no one can know what it's like to be you. I can't even almost say that because like hearing you say it makes me I feel it so much. All of us, I think, on some level, are reaching for something. All of us, Freud called it the ego ideal. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a huge Freud fan, but I do like the ego ideal mm -hmm. because it speaks to something that I have, mm -hmm. which is that no matter how hard I'm working, when I close my eyes, there is a North Star yeah. that's better than I am. Mm -hmm. For many years, it really hurt me because mm -hmm. it was like, oh, I'm not that thing. But now it's it's more of like a bearing. right? Yeah. It's more of just like a direction rather mm -hmm. than a... I'm not that. Right. An uh, aspiration. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah it's a, a guiding point, but we have that thing. Right. Very few people are going, yep, I want last year to be just like this year. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you've really been working, I've been working on myself for 11 years. And mm -hmm. so the hunger I have for change is more satiated. Yeah. Like a lot more than it used to be. Yeah. This was the first New Year's that I've ever had where I didn't dread mm -hmm. the year before. Mm. and me not doing enough I think it has a lot to do with all of you people I think it has a lot to do with opening up my life to collaboration rather than trying to do everything on my own mm. but when it comes to working with our identities how as a therapist coach researcher how are you working with people towards change because there's this joy and pleasure in change yeah. we like to yeah. we like to improve yeah Especially when we're reaching for something aspirational, right? Change that isn't that that isn't just coming from external sources and uprooting us, I think can be incredibly life changing. You have to work on a on a kind of multi layer when it comes to working with your identity and changing. And I think there has to be tons of room for acceptance and play. And I know that sounds strange because these aren't two words that are often brought up. We think about change and you think about rigidity and discipline and not acceptance, right? Part of what it is to recognize that you wanna be something else is to know that you're trying to not be who you are, right? You're trying to change, you're trying to shape yourself. But I think so often we pick shame as a fuel and it's not a sustainable fuel source. Have you heard my thoughts on discipline? 
No. They're brilliant. Are they? Yes. <laughs> I can't wait. Have you read The Road Less Traveled? Yes. I am Scott Peck. Yeah. He wrote 70 pages of perfection on discipline. Yeah. And it's perfect because he was not a disciplined man. Oh, wow. Like in his own personal life. Yeah. He, he wrote his own ego ideals yeah. version of what discipline is. And it's a perfect 70 pages. But during our book club on that book, mm -hmm. it was so funny. One of our members from the first day we started reading it was like, yeah, well, this, you know, his daughter didn't come to his own funeral and he smoked oh, cigarettes shit. and he cheated on his wife and like, you oh, know, all these man. things that are very anti, yeah. like the opposite of what's written about in the book. At first for me, it was like another male role model of mine who has let me down, yeah. which I'm always, it's like, I'm so sensitive to that because yeah. I didn't have a dad. Maybe, right. you know, I don't know. I'm not going to pathologize myself, but yeah so sensitive to to men of aspiration not ending up like if yeah. if a woman is a hypocrite nah, just a, if a if a man who i admire is a hypocrite it's like it cuts me even deeper yeah but while reading that book i just decided to go i god i wonder what the root word of discipline is it's a latin discipulus i think is how you say it oh i don't even know and they yeah. it forks with disciple so discipline and disciple actually both come from that latin word oh wow disciple is to learn right it's a learner wow. and so i always just thought how beautiful i've always attached those from then on out where i thought i think somewhere in the way that we use discipline it got very punitive yeah and yeah, it got very yeah. like harsh yeah but to me the new way that i've started framing it is discipline is the the art of learning yeah. who you are and how to work with yourself oh i love that i love that and that folds in perfectly because that requires acceptance, right? When yeah, you're, that, when you're that's learning, what I it up. yeah, when you go into anything and you're trying to get more information, part of what you're doing inherently, whether it's like outwardly or not, is recognizing here's the thing I don't know, I want more. And there's there's an acceptance and a humility that comes from that that is, I think, an, can be an incredible source of energy. Shame isn't. Shame is just going to make you drive yourself into the ground. That's not going to work. We've had we've had this discussion before, but I, I think part of the problem is we, we think we are all of us and yeah. we're like a mix of a lot of different competing forces. Like we're not yeah. one thing. Right, right. So we have our identity yeah. Our, yeah. and our identity probably is like struggling to figure out why we're not going to the gym every day because right. our identity wants to go to the gym every day. Right. But there's a million different. You, you know, there's your cardiovascular system, which yeah. has oh, some yeah. pull on the levers. Right. There's your respiratory system. There's your digestive your system. Like there's yeah, totally. so many different. And the more we learn, the more we learn that these things are in conversation. Yeah. Like when we talk about them, we separate them out and say, okay, my amygdala is over here doing this. And I'm here with having this conversation with you. And my digestive system is over here doing this. And I'm having this conversation with you because it's what I can think about. All these other things I don't I don't think to digest. It just happens. But the these systems are in conversation with each other. And so if I'm nervous because of having this conversation, that's gonna affect all the other systems. And then it becomes a feedback loop. The nervousness in the system then infects the thought process and then and that infects the narrative. And to go back to kind of the identity thing, I don't think this is the only thing that makes up our identity, but I think it's critically important for human beings because our psychology is structured narratively. Our memories are beginning, middle, and end. Stories are beginning, middle, and end. And we are more stories than biological material. Yeah, yeah. Like when we die, there's still there's exactly, a story remains. Right, right. And there's identities. Yeah. There's pieces of you out there that are other people's stories, people who don't even know you anymore or people who've never known you. 
are telling a story about you that you don't have access to. Yeah. And then there's the story that you're telling yourself and you're telling that story in three directions. You're telling it into the past. You're reconsolidating all your memories all the time and trying to re-figure out what they mean. And you're telling a story of the present and you're also telling yourself into the future. And when something traumatic happens, that narrative shatters. And so when you're someone who doesn't feel like you have a strong sense of singular identity, it could be because the narrative feels disconnected. It feels like it's not cohesive. I think there's work you can do narratively to make it more cohesive. But I think sometimes trauma is the thing that does that for us. Because when something shatters, we are forced to recognize that it exists. Speaking of competing forces, yeah, the, the trauma, mm -hmm. the tape recorder of past experiences yeah. is also one of those competing forces, which yeah. in my day-to-day -day life, I'm so disconnected from my trauma. Yeah. Like yeah. we are not, I'm not walking around aware right. of all the stuff that is actually deep in the background. Yeah. Some people are right. very aware and they, they know where to be sensitive with themselves. Right. And even those people are not as aware as they think. Right. But just from my perspective, yeah. it's like I am always caught off guard. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. And I'm always, you know, if I open up the email and I feel paralyzed mm -hmm. rather than be like, well, look, man, like you've had such a yeah chaotic life and you've been ignoring your email and now guess what mm -hmm. you're looking at chaos boom and that's kind of intense for you mm -hmm. like you haven't been doing the daily upkeep to make this yeah work with the way that you work best yeah rather than doing that i'm just like again shocked <laughs> like how could this be <laughs> right. how i how have i become so weak that a fucking email yeah. has crippled me I have two things I have yeah. to say. One is the weak thing is the reason I wrote this book. Okay. I am repulsed by weakness. I know. Yeah. When I'm in a partnership or with my son or Reese, if somebody is ill or sick, yeah. I'm like ready to load them into the wheelbarrow yeah, and take done. them out to yeah. the street. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're going to make our tribe die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah, need yeah, strength. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And you're laughing about that, but I think, can I, can we just go, can Please, I just yeah. like you grew up with a single mom. That's a precarious situation. However wonderful she made it for you. And so you were forced to deal with those more primitive concerns more than the rest of us. Yeah, no, I was terrified of someone breaking in yeah. constantly. Yeah. And I could look at my mom and I could see if she hits a fan. She's she's not going to protect us. Yeah. She wouldn't be able to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that builds itself into your wiring and becomes your worldview. And, and I have to be very careful when yeah. I'm feeling weak and people are taking care of me because I will bond in inappropriate ways too. Yeah. Oh, how so? I'm just like a fault in love. Just <laughs> I'll be ready to get married. Yeah. Because again, it's that primitive it's thing. It's like, how could you love me? Yeah. yeah. Oh. How could you love me when I'm oh, useless? Oh, because it's so dangerous. It's yeah. dangerous. You're, and your system is imprinting that as literal mortal danger. Yeah. Right. Because, and there's probably some really deep shame in there too. Because when you're a kid, you're, when you're developing, shame is one of the first things that you have access to. There's a lot that gets built in to shame that isn't shameful at all. And your adult cognitive brain might be like, oh, it's not, it's not shameful to be, that, to be afraid of weakness. But when you're growing up, you need a huge emotion attached to that fear because your system is trying to motivate you to safety. Yeah. Again, that becomes your worldview. It gets written into your system. And you can work against it. You can rewire it but it takes an incredible amount of energy. One of the things that is going to be most interesting 
while working through this book with you and our amazing book club is the idea of brokenness. Because one of the things that's come up in this show is I have, thanks to the internet, I have become connected to others, Mm -hmm. right? And other people who have just heartbreaking stories. And there are some people that you meet that have gone through so much Mm -hmm. and are so wounded Mm -hmm. that it is hard not to go, I don't know how you get back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel very lucky that I made it back and that I can show up four or five days a week for eight to 12 hours Mm -hmm. and that we can, I can have a somewhat productive life. Mm -hmm. But I feel like such an outlier yeah. And one of the interesting things that'll happen while reading this with you is to hear, I guess, the hope yeah. and the message oh, yeah. here. Yeah. Because I've met people, you know, things happen to them when they're five years old. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like, what can I say to this person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I don't even know if I believe in healing right. myself. Right, right, right. It's That's such a great question. And I think, so to begin, I had a very long path with the word broken because that was a word that came to me very early. That was a word that I believed in. I thought, okay, all we have to do then is, I think I've kind of, my little sparkly soul is always oriented towards hope. It's just how I came to this world. At the first teaching job I had, they nicknamed me Dr. Sunshine because I was like, I'm very like sunny person, but I was studying like suicide and child death. And they were like, what are you going to do next, Dr. Sunshine? So I thought like, okay, let's just reframe brokenness, right? And we can think about the Japanese art of kintsugi, which came out of utility, right? So you had four bowls and one of them fell and broke as they do. And then you had to lacquer it back together. In the beginning, they used clear lacquer and then they adopted using gold lacquer. And over time, the broken bowls became more valuable than the ones that had never been broken. And I thought like, okay, that's perfect. That's what we need. But the more that I worked with clients and saw things in my own life and my own growth, I realized, no, this broken thing is wrong. That is based on bad science. We are not breakable, which doesn't mean everyone makes it. Like, unfortunately, the situation is terminal for all of us eventually, and some of us a lot sooner than it should be. But I think if we start with the idea of unbroken instead of the idea of brokenness, then we're a lot more likely to heal. And one of the reasons why I think this work is critically important, it has nothing to do with the fact that I wrote it and want it to do well, but we are not getting people the information and the empowerment that they need to heal. And if we did, I don't think we would lose so many people. I know we wouldn't lose so many people. Part of your life includes working with ex-gang members Mm -hmm. and people who are coming out of the prison system, many of whom you get to know When I get to meet these people, oftentimes in similar life circumstances, often in recovery, Mm -hmm. so I get some vulnerability. Yeah. But I'm also still meeting their bodyguard. Yeah. And and their mask. You're getting to look a little bit deeper and see what childhood experiences happened to these people and what being raised by gang members Mm -hmm. led to what getting, um, what do you call it when you get initiated? Jumped in. When you get jumped in at 11 Mm -hmm. and when you're expected. Yeah, or seven. When you're expected to hurt people. Yeah to fit in to your community. Yeah. How do you look at somebody who is antisocial on such a dangerous level Yeah. and stay hopeful for each case that there's some chance Yeah. to fold them into society? Yeah, this is going to make me cry, probably. <laughs> it's hard. To, I haven't talked a lot about working with gang members because I'm always so nervous about like exploiting their pain. But that experience working with previously incarcerated folks and gang members was the greatest gift of my life because I saw over and over and over and over again that there's something inside of us 
all of us, no matter what we have done, no matter what we have been through, that never gives up. And that beautiful little pre-jumped in, pre-violent, pre-guarded self is worth rescuing. And it is pure and accessible. We just need the patience and the bravery to find it. I don't think there are bad people. It's not a thing. There are just dangerous people. I think people... What's the most pragmatic way to... Because I feel like there is extreme risk out there. Yeah, so for sure. I'm not trying to moralize people, but I do want to be... I would love to find the middle ground of how yeah. to stay safe and optimistic for yeah. our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Where you're not putting yourself in danger trying to yep. rescue people. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And I don't think that it's appropriate to... When I say rescue, that little being inside themselves, that's something that you have to do yourself, right? I love your mm. quote of, what is it? The good news is that... <laughs> the good news, you're a hero. Yes. The bad news, you have to save you yourself. You have to save yourself. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that we do that, that is safe and accessible to each other, is by providing what I call a relational home to each other, which I can unpack in a second. But I think, to your point, there are people who behave in very dangerous, violent ways. I don't... There's no denying that at all. The thing that I reject is that the idea that those people are bad. Right. Those people are in pain. And I think understanding that distinction is a great starting point for unraveling how you get there. Because if we want to change that in our society or even in an individual life, we have to figure out how that happened. In order to do that, you have to peel away the shame and the judgment. And you can't come into the room saying... So let me... Let's talk about how that happened. How does the trauma response work? So the trauma response is a set of default automatic responses built into your nervous system that's designed to protect you in the face of overwhelming threat. What happens is, and this, this evolved over time, so we share some pieces of the trauma response with much more primitive animals, right? So you think about like a lizard. A lizard has an amygdala, which is at the center of our trauma response in the brain. When you scare a lizard, it runs away, right? So it has that same thing. And it doesn't think to run away. It doesn't think to run away. It's automatic, right? And often when we are developing, we're responding to the world. Part of what we are doing, especially when we're really young, is trying to determine how much danger we're in. And then our system is leveling up and down based on how safe the circumstances are. When you have someone who grows up in a very precarious, maybe violent experience, their system is adapting for survival. So that can create, like you mentioned, like a bodyguard that can create a very strong external persona that acts as a shell between that person and the outside world that can be very gruff, aggressive, violent, angry, that kind of stuff. And it can take shape in a bunch of different ways, but basically the system in these amazing, miraculous, sophisticated ways is just trying to keep you safe. When we start there and we understand that, the way that the system gets built and the way that we can work with it, then we can actually change. So if you grew up that way, that doesn't mean you have to be that way forever. Because the most exciting thing we've realized in neuroscience in the last 50 years of studying the brain is that we aren't just neuroplastic, we are malleable. Many of the systems that we used to believe are hardwired are simply not. We just need to know exactly what to target and how to change them, and then we can behave differently and feel differently in the world, not just in in the way that we understand it, but in our bodies. So the alpha chimp, yeah, I'm going to be unfuckwithable. I'm going to be yeah. so big and bad that no one will ever hurt me again. Yeah, That makes so much sense mm-hmm. to me. 
Yep. I don't want to deal with those people. Right. But when I see those people, I understand. I go, man, you must be really afraid. Yeah. You know, you must be spending a lot of energy making sure Mm -hmm. that shit is never going to happen to you again. Yeah. One of the um, stranger responses that I've seen is like what I would call like puddle people, Mm -hmm. right? Like people that become so sensitive Mm -hmm. that when anything happens, they just melt. They're possums. How does that make, like, it just feels like, well, you don't survive in the jungle. Right. How does that survive eight million years separating from the chimps? But you do survive, right? So the three default trauma responses are fight, flight, freeze. And we can talk about fawn in a minute. Group that underneath those three. But people can argue with me about that if they want. It's very easy to depict fight in the media. The kind of archetype that you just described is very easy to see. And that person is in some sense very strong. So they survive in another way. But when we think about flight or freeze, that also is an evolutionary adaptation. So if you think about a possum, right? And a a possum, if you scare it, will play dead. Have you ever seen this? Yeah. And they can actually like get their nervous system down so low their blood flow, their heart rate, and their respiration, so that if you walk past it, you don't think that it's alive. And if I understand this correctly, animals will be less likely to eat that thing because it could have died from eating poison, and then that that animal is going to ingest that poison and potentially be at risk. And so the in, in biology, the adaptation makes sense. Now, your question is about human beings, right? How How is it the case that puddle people have made it? Right. But what happens when people become puddles is that they often get attention, affection and support. And so they are able to. Which is what they actually need. Right. Yeah. And can help them kind of opt out of situations that feel really scary. So that seems to set you up for a perfect storm of shitty feedback loop. Yep. Totally. Where to get what you need requires extreme distress. Right. Yep. So in a society that isn't hugging enough isn't mm-hmm. checking in on each other enough. We're not even relating enough. Yeah, what's this? So that I've I've been in that mm-hmm. feedback loop. Yeah, me too. And I, I know many people currently mm-hmm. in that feedback loop. Yeah. What is the way to help support? What is the way for these people who recognize what I just said within themselves? Yeah. So that's an incredibly self-destructive. Completely. Like you will let your car payment lapse. Yeah. You will let your yeah. job fire you Mm -hmm. people who are truly stuck in that response loop Mm -hmm. can end up at rock bottom totally yeah just to keep it going Mm -hmm. and i've been there Mm -hmm. what in your opinion what is the way to start the process of getting out of that because like you like it is achieving something yeah i hadn't thought about it the way that you described it yeah but they are in a very dangerous place yeah in my and in my estimate, like if totally. you identify with that statement that I just said, you're in a very dangerous, dangerous place. place. Yeah. yeah. So this is tricky. I say the subtitle of the book is the trauma response is never wrong. And sometimes people say, Well, but it's causing me an incredible amount of discomfort, right? Like I am having these trauma symptoms in moments that are really inconvenient. What do I do about that? How can you say it's never wrong? And the thing is that you have so the trauma response is is adaptive. We need it. It's like the smoke alarm in your kitchen. 
It might be annoying when it goes off because you're cooking bacon and not because there's fire, but you don't get rid of it. That's not the answer, right? You need that alert system in your body. Sometimes what happens, especially when you've got developmental trauma or stuff has gotten written into your nervous system, what started out as adaptive becomes over time maladaptive. So the puddle people got the kind of attention that they needed as a child and that worked really well for them. And then as an adult- Or didn't get the attention they needed. Or didn't and then continued to do it. Right, exactly. Yep. And then as an adult, that becomes maladaptive. Notice how I didn't say anything about brokenness. I didn't say anything about shame. I didn't say anything about, oh, that's really bad that you're in that situation. What I'm trying to say is that the science shows that where you are makes sense. It's a product of the part of your past you had no control or say over. So start there. Because the people who are listening to this podcast who are in that position are going to say, oh, no, that's me. Oh, no, that's me. Oh, no, I'm beyond. I'm one of the people. No. Yeah, and I do be clear. I feel that way often. Yeah, yeah. Like the next horizon for me, I think, is like intimacy stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I have just, for whatever, I'm unfortunate to have had enough things not work out in love and intimacy that I am now starting to feel like. Yep. It is harder and harder to say, well, just didn't work out, but right. I can't wait to, it wasn't in the to stars, try right? yeah. my, my enthusiasm to yeah. get on the horse. I'm starting, I'm starting to get to the point where I can feel, mm-hmm. uh-oh, there's work to be done mm-hmm. here yeah. if I want to build the relationships that I want to build, if I want to have the friendships that I want to have, like the hits that I've, yeah. That yeah. I've taken yeah. are sticky. Yeah. And I think sticky is actually a word that you use. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is sticky. And I think like, it's funny, I just had a a session with a client about this kind of thing this morning about how intimacy, I think, is the scariest thing we do as humans. Because when we are intimate, truly, truly intimate, there is no getting around our vulnerability. And so much of what we do, you know, talk about the ego defense from Freud, so much of what we do is try to protect ourselves from that. That feels to the nervous system scary. And what I see often in clients is in precisely the relationships where they start to feel safe, the stuff starts coming to the surface. And working through that and staying, not to say that you should stay in in every relationship, but working through that rather than using it as an excuse to run is critically important, not just for your relationship status, but for your healing. Because part of what trauma needs in order to heal is opposite experience. And so if you've had experience that you're not seen, you're not respected, you're not cherished, any of these things, that's what your nervous system is telling you is true about relating. You need to have opposite experience to, to counter that. But engaging in that act of relation is threatening. Like the system actually experiences it as danger. And so we start doing all this disorganized stuff and it's our body and system trying to protect us again starting there learning that your body is a little barometer it's giving you data all the time about people about you in relationship with people all these things if you can tune into the channel where that barometer is giving the reading then you have so much information about what's going on and what what you need does that track yeah it's just a lot to it's a lot yeah it's a lot to process yeah can I, make, can I take a guess, though, about you? Of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> Intimacy? I'll edit it out if I don't like it. So, or Reese will edit perfect. it out for me if, I, if we don't like it. So tell me if this resonates and you can totally reject it. Okay. I'm, I'm just guessing. But you brought up the example before, which I think is really interesting, about this sort of like uber-masculine kind of defense where you have you, you get super big and super strong in order to protect yourself. You look yeah. so freaked out right now. 
Do I? Yeah. Okay. Well, the listeners don't know that. So. <laughs> Only the patrons watching this on now video know that. Yeah. <laughs> Your defense is more sophisticated than that. You became a very sparkly self, charming, engaged, but you're holding back your truest self here and everyone else is here. Being able to let someone in past all the sparkle. Oh, I play a dynamic game. I know. Because I did the steroids. Yeah. I got strong. Yeah. Joined the wrestling team. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, took yeah, fighting yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. Yeah. I also have this for an introvert. I don't know what on earth it made sense to develop this courtier yeah, yeah, exactly. Charm. Yeah, yeah, trickster. Yeah, trickster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super sophisticated because you took all the tools you could possibly find and access. It's like you sat in the back of the room and you were like, all right. Well, I literally did, actually. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I like barely spoke in classes. And you were you were watching. And I was you watching. you were like, what does this person have? What does this person have? What does this person have? I'm going to grab all of it and it's going to be my candy shell. And yeah. no one, no, not one fucker is ever going to get access to here. Yeah. I remember too, like this guy, Jimmy, one time I was like laughing about something and he just turns to me and he goes, do you think you're funny? Oh shit. Cause you're not. <laughs> and I remember my first thought wasn't hurt. It was, oh, that's good. See? Yeah. That's going in the tool belt. Yeah. When right. I need to hurt somebody. Right. So it was always searching, yep. always like, yep, yep, yep. oh, that worked really well. Right. That worked really well. Rather than like, I'm just going to be right. Sam. It was a collection of. Right. So you said a little while ago that your trauma is kind of in the back, right? That it's not in your everyday. But I think what you just described is. No, what I, what I mean yeah. to say is that it doesn't live with my consciousness. Right. Yes. So it's like, it's okay. It's like wearing a big backpack. Mm -hmm. And then every time you turn around and the backpack's knocking things yeah. over, you're not aware that you're wearing the backpack. Yeah. So you keep forgetting that it's on. So you're like, what the, f <laughs> like, is my ass that big? <laughs> Why do I keep knocking things over? So there is a disconnect. And I think I think it's totally survival. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like like a camera iris that yeah. I got to keep it really stopped down, really small, because yeah. if I, for a second, just open the aperture up and, and look at it, it's going to blind me. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and your system would never let you do that, so you don't have to worry about no, that. No, I'm safe. Yeah, I want you to hear, as my friend Sam, that you shouldn't have had to be that hypervigilant so young. Oh, thanks. Like, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, a little bit. A lot. Because that's when you noticed the hypervigilance, which means it was there a lot sooner. And it's not supposed to be that way. Well, it is for me. I know. It's really hard not to hug you. I know you can't hug me. It'll ruin the shot. So what do I do? <laughs> this. What do I do from here? This. You do this. You recognize that that's motivating some of your behavior and some of the way that you see the world, and you just note that. And then when you start to behave in ways that doesn't make sense to you, then you say, hold on, what's going on here? Because here's the thing that we haven't talked about kind of traumatic memories yet, but what happens when you're developing or when you experience anything that's too overwhelming to process? You mentioned the tape recorder a little while ago. The tape recorder like shuts down when you have too much overwhelm. And the way that I think about it is that you have this part of your brain called the hippocampus, which is where all of your long-term memories get stored. And so between four and 24 hours after any event, you get a file. And the file is supposed to have narrative content that makes sense, beginning, middle, and end. Emotional content, what kind of emotion was operating at the time. And then kind of a set of tags of meaning. What did this, when did this happen? What does it mean? What did I learn? So, and the way that the reason your brain 
organizes things like that so efficiently is because it helps you navigate the world. You don't have to go searching to connect the dots all the time. Is that mushroom poison? I can't really remember. Let's give it a shot. That's not going to work out. So the little guys in the file room are incredibly precise. When you have an overwhelming event, there's a file that gets created, but it's imperfect. It's disorganized in some way. So it might have pieces of a narrative that don't really fit together. It might have tons of emotional content, very little narrative. It might have a narrative and no emotional content, or it might not have the right meaning tags. And the little precise file guys in the back of your hippocampus don't like that. And so they try to help you by throwing that file front of mind anytime anything in your perception looks like something in that file. It's like, here, do it again. Let's organize it. Now we're getting somewhere interesting. Yeah. Because we're talking about. This hasn't been interesting. <laughs> no, this has been interesting. But you're, you've probably seen my memory. No. No, you've, you've never seen how bad my memory oh, is. Oh, you say it is, but you, I haven't experienced it. Amazing. I'm okay. so glad that I have you fooled. <laughs> Many people do. Reese, if he had a microphone, could tell you. He's bad. He's nodding. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I've always I've been in like a battle with any mental health professional where they're going, oh, that's a trauma response. That's tra-. And I'm going, mm. no, I've done so many drugs yeah. and I've gotten hit in the head so many times. Mm. And so that's why when we first started talking, I was like, can we get brain scans? Yes. Because I would love yeah. to just see like, is there actual recognizable damage mm. or is it really some complicated trauma. Yeah. trauma algorithm, which I don't know. Listen, from what you've told me, and again, I'm guessing I can't see your brain and I don't know where to go. Yeah, we will get we, will, the, we should do yes, this and make yeah. a documentary about it. But from what you've told me about the vigilance that rooted itself in your nervous system at six, before six, you had a lot going on. When the brain is hypervigilant, a lot of blood flow is going into the prefrontal cortex, the visual cortex. It's trying to like notice everything. Your working memory, the memory that you need to remember tiny little details, is probably on fire. But that pulls away, the, the, the brain has limited resources. So that's going to pull away from the hippocampus, the long-term memory, especially if the hypervigilance goes on 24-7, right? You, we, we calibrate our memories and recalibrate our memories in the hippocampus, usually in times of rest or when we're sleeping. And so if that didn't happen for you, then it's possible that your hippocampus is less efficient and effective than it would be if you didn't have that experience. Add to that drug use and getting hit in the head, and that can further damage things. But I bet that that was an issue before. Before. Before drugs and and hits. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe we'll see when we get the. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I need. God, I just, I've, it's one of those things where I feel like if I if I get to look at the yeah the imaging that they do, it'll, it'll like it'll be like such a great. It'll be wild. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you would like to help fund my brain scan, <laughs> insurance is not interested in covering my brain scan. Brain scan for the purpose of, of curiosity. Support, support us and join our lovely community <laughs> by going to our Patreon, which is in the description. I don't want to. I don't want to kill the fundraising vibe, but I will it, no tell one you. Will join. Don't worry. <laughs> I want to tell you something disappointing, which is that even if you did scan your brain, there are so many factors in your nervous system that are impacting things that it's really unlikely that you'd find like one pinpointable issue. We know that in the brains of folks who have PTSD, there's diminished activity in the hippocampus and a lot more activity in the limbic system and the amygdala and other structures that are responsible for panic because it's their smoke alarm and the smoke alarm is going off. There's tons of energy being pulled there from other resources, which again, I wanna underline is really cool Right. Because even though that's 
it has negative you know consequences and your memory might not be as good as you want it's an adaptation that's that's aimed at at keeping you alive the trauma response is rooted in strength not weakness yeah it's a survival yeah and we've been getting it wrong for 150 years enough the science knows better it's time for us tell me more <laughs> so in you know in the 1800s before we can look at the brain all we could do is guess about what was going on. These people had these incredibly confusing symptoms that seemed to shift, and no one knew what was going on. Freud and, and co. Freud and Breuer and some other people took a population of female members of sexual assault. We didn't have the language for that back then, but that was the kind of thing that was... What, what, what were they? Hysterical women? Hysterical women, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I assumed as much. Yeah, exactly right. And they tried to figure out what, what was going on, and they... They have this sentence in the beginning of studies on hysteria where they were like, we think it might be from the past. Like we think that there's a, a precipitating event that causes these symptoms mm. and we don't know what it is. And through their work with one of their clients, Anna O, oh, they discovered what they called then the talking cure, which is the whole basis of psychology as we know. Psychoanalysis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What they theorized was that if you could sit in a safe place with someone and and talk about what had happened that was too overwhelming to process that that person could help you process it and then your symptoms would go away and they had success and that's amazing what a be what, a, what an amazing beginning of study and then they realized that the, the presenting experience that all of their patients had in common was sexual assault by these people by you know Freudenberger's friends and right. these, these, Wait, say that one more time. What they realized is that all of their clients had, all of their patients had the same kind of precipitating event, which was sexual assault at the hands of their friends and colleagues because it was their daughters. And so to come forward and say, what's this blowing your mind? Or am I just not making sense? I'm, I'm trying to. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying that the. The doctor's yeah. friends yeah. were assaulting their spouses. Their daughters. Their daughters. Yeah, each other's daughters. Each other's daughters. Yeah. So this is like a cabal? No. <laughs> or this is commonplace? Like a, well, I'm so I think it was just really common, unfortunately. And so what they then, re they realized if they were to go forward with their work, that would put them at an incredible risk because all, they were going to be maligned by all of their colleagues and friends and you know higher ups in society because these these were their daughters it was a small community to draw from right people who could afford psychiatric care at the time in the 1800s and so they renounced their work and there had been this huge uptick in the study of trauma and then it just dropped off because the leaders were like nope I don't want anything to do with this but it wasn't because they were wrong which i think is fascinating and so this, the history of the study of trauma has been episodic. You have these moments of like incredible highs. Everyone wants to talk about it. It's, let's figure it out. And then it just drops off for one reason or another. Yeah, for me, and this is one of the earlier discussions that we have, for me, the, the struggle, the dance is like, what is the sweet spot between moving the fuck on and acknowledgement? Mm -hmm. Because you, you see it like yeah. so overblown. Mm -hmm in so many different areas. Like I, I see people that are acknowledging their trauma yeah. and affirming their trauma yeah. and they're also never gonna get better. Yeah. And there's like a group of kind of more macho guys that I talk mm -hmm. with and hang out with and they've just like gotten on. Mm -hmm. 
And it doesn't seem fair to me where I'm like, you guys should be mm-hmm. fucked right now. Yeah. And for whatever reason, your little compartmentalization game is at least right now working. Yeah. Well, the key, the key is at least right now. It at won't. least right now. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, but you know, it, yeah, I know that like, mm-hmm. I, I know that there's, there's something to what each party is doing that mm-hmm. is working in its own way. Yeah. But there's, we go through these moments, especially if, you've, if you're in the right hashtags on social media, mm-hmm. where it just feels like we're going to create generation of helpless people. Yeah, yeah. If we just affirm it too much. Yeah, there's, and, a, there's a new personality construct, and I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the core of it is victimhood. Yeah, victimhood is powerfully yeah, seductive. Yeah. It is one of the most potent mm-hmm. because it is acknowledging. Mm-hmm. Right. It's acknowledging and moving in. I'm going to acknowledge this. I'm going to move into it. I'm going to make it my whole identity. When we over-identify with any one piece of ourselves, the system is eventually going to suffer for it. And so I think, you know, there's this, there's a couple things I want to talk about, but one of them is the definition of trauma that I use is, it's like an equation. Anytime you have an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home, you have a potential for lasting trauma. So unbearable emotions, lack of a relational home, potential for trauma. Now, the temporality of trauma gets really confusing because we can successfully sometimes compartmentalize. I can go through something terrible and block it off and move right the hell along. And our society feeds us all this information about how if I'm moving along, if I'm successful, then I'm okay. Yeah. The thing didn't get me. And so that does become a positive feedback loop. And in some sense, that is helpful. At some point, there will be a reckoning because the trauma waits for you. And I, I actually mean that in a hopeful way. I know it sounds really damning, but it, it doesn't just melt away. It, it's going to wait and it will come out when it sees an opportunity, when you feel safe, when you are have some time and it will pop up and that will be really inconvenient. And so I think if we can arm people with the knowledge of that and then take away their impulse to shame themselves for it then that helps the group that has compartmentalized their way out of it. I, that was me. I did that for sure. I was, I'm a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, and the other side, the victimhood thing is that that works too really well, right? And and in some sense, identifying with, I forget the language that you used, like heralding it, calling it out on social media, right? Like drawing attention to it, acknowledging it is I think what you said, is powerful because you're doing some of the work to organize that memory file that was disorganized to begin with and relate to people who have the same experience. But the thing that you're not doing is... I think for me, there's like, at some point, there's a rejection to move on because it's like, I am acknowledging Mm -hmm. my stuff over and over and over again. Every breath I draw Mm -hmm. is oh, you, you poor thing for going to this. Yeah. But the the world never does. Right, right. Right? Like, but also, if you make your whole identity your trauma, you it's impossible then to heal. Yeah. Because you have to give up your identity. It would be like ego death. Well, that's that's the fork in the road that I ended up recently is yeah. I, I had to right. scream in, in the same thing that, the same reason I've lost my voice now is with the, the same wackos that I've been with. <laughs> Is I had I literally had to scream like I'm done being a victim. Yeah. And like I understand that I am a victim Mm -hmm. and I understand that I am Mm -hmm. like I I have every excuse in the book. If I if I wanted to play a small game, if I wanted to be mediocre, I I have it. Yeah. I can get every therapist, every new therapist I have to let me play at fifty percent. Yeah. As long as I 
groom them yep and, right. and to how to interact with yeah, me. Yeah, that's that shiny thing I was talking about, the candy shell. Yeah, yep. and I will get you to let me play yep. at 50%. Yep. But the pain that it causes on the back end, like at the New Year's parties, and I'm the one in the back of the room going, fuck, why did I play at 50%? Right, right. You know, like, well, and ima- amplify that to the end of your life. Yeah. Right, so it sucks on the New Year, but what happens when you hit 80 and you're looking back. Oh, yeah, then. You know? Bad things are happening. Bad things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't serve you, ultimately. And I think the important thing to recognize is that victimhood, as you're, you're, you're explaining it beautifully, sometimes is a place you need to be in your healing arc. Like, it's not that we then, okay, so now let's internalize the thing and say, I can never be a victim. No, right? You, you in some sense, are. And so living into that is an important part of healing. Then what? Right. What's the next step going to be? And that's integration. Here, speaking of in- integration, here's one of my crazier ideas. Yeah. I th- I think that on a large scale, individual therapy is not going to be able to catch up. Yeah. No, it isn't. Especially because the system's broken. Yeah. Yeah. So right. once a week, two hundred plus dollars an hour. Yeah. Lots of places. Doesn't scale. If you're going through insurance, probably once a month. Yeah. Will never be like you'll always be playing catch up. Mm-hmm. And the idea that your problems are so individual, I think is making less and less sense to yeah, me. Yeah. Like I think when you get into group models like support groups or 12 mm-hmm. step or, or even group therapies, yeah. which I've never been a part of, but I am now, yeah. my interest in group mm-hmm. therapy is more, is renewed Yeah. Yep. after taking place in a couple of group mm-hmm. activities. I've been running groups since the beginning of the pandemic and they're kind of a mix of kind of a traditional process group and education and it's aimed at exactly what you're talking about. On alchemy coaching? On alchemy coaching yeah, okay. dot life. Yeah. So thank you. The, I got you. It's, it's aimed at empowering you to understand what's happening. So there's the education piece. Then there are tools that you can use in between sessions. So you, you're not just like, because that's the other problem with scalability when it comes to therapy. If you don't get tools to take with you, then you're really only working that one hour, right? And so it's tools, but then it's also community because when we help each other heal, we heal. And there, so what I've experienced in group two is that there was the cathartic events mm-hmm. were better. Yeah. Because I'm feeling, oh, I'm in pain, you know, mm-hmm. while they're like leading us. Yeah. Like, wow, I resonate with that. And then somebody's spilling open. Right. And their spilling open causes you to spill open yeah. in a way that I would never do it. Totally. And the, the breakthroughs are bigger too, because when somebody who's gone through something similar or worse than you stands up on their feet, yeah. it feels kind of weird to be sitting on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And all of, all of a sudden, I would say probably my survival instinct is going, hey, the pack is yeah. moving on. It's time. Like yeah. if you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to migrate mm-hmm. to the next location with the pack, it's you're going to have to pack what you can and leave the rest behind yeah. because yeah. you know so and so, Rochelle or Rachel is they're ready yeah. to go. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way to put that. I love that. There's this this built into the definition that I use is this idea of a relational home. And sometimes people get angry because they're like, what the hell does that mean? I was going to ask. I forgot to ask. <laughs> but I think you just explained it, right? Which is, so we, we are structured psychologically such that we need feedback from other humans. This is true when we build language, when we're developing, when we build our access to emotions, all this other stuff. And so 
think about like have you ever had the experience where you tell a joke like in a really sort of like you're trying to break the ice it's like a work thing or whatever and you're like oh i've got it and it just falls flat yeah or worse is like super inappropriate super inappropriate yeah. people are like turning red and angry at you what do you do what, what are you doing at three o'clock in the morning making sure you never do that again right you yeah. are pulling yourself apart at the seams because it's not just and and you'll start like it'll spiral you'll be like oh those people aren't funny <laughs> and then you'll be like maybe i'm not funny and then you'll be like maybe i was like having a stroke and that was word salad like and then now i'm gonna google that and then you're like no it's me and then you start questioning all of your life choices that brought you to that yeah no one will ever right. respect me again right yeah. Right, right, exactly. And so if you imagine, so that's a relational home, that's a failure of a relational home. When you tell a joke, you're you're kind of spitting out some emotional content with a story. And when it doesn't get mirrored back to you, all of a sudden your identity has a problem. So imagine, so that's just when you tell a joke in kind of a work situation. Now imagine if it's the the, the biggest thing you've got, your biggest secret, the thing you have the most shame about in your world, and you share that with somebody and they say, it's not a big deal. Everyone deals with that kind of stuff. Is that the first time that's happened to you? Brush it off, man. You're broken, right? Like you're now, if your identity was in question when you had the joke, what is it like now? And so I think when we are able to, in a group or one-on-one, -on -one, and this doesn't have to be with a therapist, this could be with anybody, say, oh man, that sounds hard then we're providing a relational home. Or we're saying, oh, this person got up and I've been through that and maybe I can get up too. You're, they're giving you a relational home without even directly addressing that. Yeah, one relational home that has just been created in our, our little group, our, our online group, is one of our members who shows up every Monday got fired. Mm. It, was, it was a good firing in a way because her boss was disgusted. Yeah. And like... We, we, everybody kind of secretly was hoping that Carol was going to quit her job yeah. and then she got fired. And for the last meetings, when we would all kind of meet up and do little mm -hmm. study halls, mm -hmm. like rather than her writing poetry or drawing or something fun, she was just sending out job applications. Yes. And on group level, she yep. worked for weeks sending out job applications yep. and getting close in interview processes. And everyone's witness to this. Yeah. She just got, she just accepted a job. Hey, congratulations. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so our, our group now has like, I saw it from the outpouring mm -hmm. of support and I saw it from the way that the rest of the group, yeah. like Carol was updating me. Oh my God, I'm getting texts from everyone. Yeah. Oh. I saw now that our group that meets regularly yeah. now has a, 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 foundational stone yeah. in that work yeah. that if anybody is ever in that place we now have yeah. carol there yeah who is the the totem yeah. to yeah. hey just you know let's let's send out applications let's that. get it done that's why i think that group is so important mm -hmm. and if it's even if it's not our group it, you should be creating some group yep yeah. yep yeah. in yeah. some way we have our thursday group that, yeah you know which is now our tuesday group in a way yeah but of, of meeting and the the way that we work in group is different than the way that we work when we're alone alone at home mm -hmm. at 9 p.m and yep. we feel really lonely yep. and like failures yep totally and the critical voice comes in and says you didn't finish everything on your to-do list what the hell's wrong with you blah, blah, blah. you should just go lay on the floor yeah yeah no i think there's and it's almost like i wonder if we could split it into so a relational home is when someone says i get it i know how you feel you're okay 
And then there's something that's happening in that group that's like relational action. Yeah. Because, yeah, I see that in my group too. We just had a party on Friday for someone who had just quit their job that she'd been trying to quit for years. And it was through this accountability of the two years in the group or three years actually now in the group that made it possible for her to do it. And then we were there to celebrate. So it's like this glue. Yeah, I don't want to do much alone anymore. No, no, me I've like, I really romanticized it yeah, for most of my life. Too. I was like catastrophically like, Yeah, alone. real thinkers, they go home and yeah. they think. And real writers and real artists. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think I'm, at least for now, done playing that game. Yeah, yeah. You and I are yeah. our first book writing. Boot camp. Boot camp starts tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to co write our books yep. together yep. and that's that's and the way i want to live yep. working in this office with with reese that's the way i want to live yep yep and yeah the the isolation i always had emerson is one of my soulmates and heroes ralph waldo emerson and i went very frequently to his house i grew up in massachusetts and so i got to go to the emerson house and there's this table and he used to journal every single day he would write every single day and i always had so admired that solitude of like, this is how I'm going to be. I'm going to sit at this table every day and I'm going to journal and I'm going to like change, you know, the way we think or whatever. And now I'm like, no, I need people in the room. Yeah. (laughs) Was he alone? He was, yeah. I mean, he was in his family home, so his family was around, but he was very... How did they do it? He spent a lot of time alone. He was sad. He was really sad. Okay, good. Yeah. He suffered. He's, he, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. No, he gets called cold very often and I don't, I think he was in pain. I know he was in pain. He wasn't cold. Yeah. Triggers are tough. Triggers are tough. Because they're so easily manipulated. Oh, say more. What do you mean? Okay. So (laughs) once you are trying to live the sensitive life Mm -hmm. and be a good, outstanding member of society, you You mean not numbing with? And like, you know, listening to people when they tell you stuff. Yeah. You will, like, I have found it is hard to tell when somebody is just like, trying to change my behavior for Mm. their benefit or when they are truly having a triggering event. And there's like a lot of this like, hey, you're triggering me rather rather than when when it it could just be said like, hey, you know, when you when you do that, it really bothers me. Yeah. You know, rather than what I think a Mm. trigger is. Yeah. I think it's just like I'm fumbling this a lot, but no, you're you're making perfect sense. I think exactly what is at the heart. So there's a there's a section in the book called avoiding the trigger trap, and I think that has become a very sexy word, and we have weaponized it, and we no longer mean what we used to mean when we say that we are triggered. Often, what we mean is I'm having a feeling. Yeah, I don't like this feeling. It's inconvenient at this moment, and so now everything shuts down. And I think it's really critical. Like words matter. So right? you anti-trigger? I, I am anti-trigger warning. Actually, I got in a little bit of trouble very early in my academic career for writing a piece about against trigger warnings, because they don't actually help people who have. In fact, they often make them feel more isolated. And so, an example you can think of is like, let's say I'm teaching in a college classroom, and I want to show. I teach a class called Trauma and the Troubled Mind, and we watch a lot of movies and we look a lot of depictions of what trauma looks like in the media and talk about the ethics of trauma. And if I have veterans in the room, everyone knows they're veterans, right? Because we probably had this conversation, we get intimate in my classrooms, and so we have this conversation in the beginning, they know, you know, students know who the veterans are, 
and I say at the beginning of class, hey, trigger warning, this we're going to we're going to show we're going to watch American Sniper. And so that's going to have some violence in that you guys are going to be triggered. What am I what message am I sending? That uh, we're all worried about Dan's response. Exactly. Dan's <laughs> about to freak out and everyone should pay attention like a little bit in your periphery to whether Dan's freaking out. And he's a veteran. So we got to really pay attention. Right. Because we've built into this idea of a freak out that there's going to be violence, which is completely an irrational, awful stereotype that is not true. And so we are isolating the person who's got trauma even further and also making everyone freaked out. And so what I do in the beginning of class instead is to say, hey, this class is about trauma. That's going to make you feel things. Those things may be inconvenient. If you can't handle that at any moment, you're more than welcome to do what you need to take care of yourself. But I'm not going to stand here and tell you who in the room <laughs> is about to freak out when because it's just going to make them feel worse. That's not a relational home. That's the opposite of a relational home. And we're also teaching those people that the way to handle a trigger is to avoid. And that's actually not true on a nervous system level. So remember we were talking about the, the brain, the memory files? Yeah. So when you have a trigger, your brain is trying to get you to integrate something. Now, it's a terrible method. It feels awful because what happens is your hippocampus throws the memory file front of mind and then your amygdala notices it, recognizes it as threatening, and then you're off to the races. Your stress response system is active and your body thinks it's happening, right? So it's not actually a memory. It's, it's a, an instance of reliving. We need totally new language around it. And so the, the thing to do, what your body is trying to get you to do in that moment is to integrate what hasn't yet been integrated, not avoid it. And so when we're talking about triggers, we're getting it wrong in at least three ways. One is the idea that we're always conscious of them. We're not. Often a lot of work has to be done in order to figure out how to connect the dots between this feeling and that stimulus. Two is that the thing we should do with triggers is to avoid them right? That we, we don't ever have to look at them and we shouldn't look at them. In fact, if you've, if you've been a veteran, if you've had sexual assault, you should never, you know, think about those things ever again. That's totally wrong. And it keeps people traumatized. And three is this idea that like, if I say I'm triggered, then you have to change your behavior. Right. That's, if, I think, the part that rubs me the wrong way. Right. If I say I'm triggered, like if you do something that triggers me, I'm trying to think of like a good example. Okay, I have one, right? Of me specifically? It's, it's hypothetical. <laughs> okay. It's not, you haven't done this yet. But I've, I've had a lot of people in my life die suddenly. And so I struggle when friends like have medical situations and then won't go to the doctor because I'm like, I just think everyone's going to die. And then I start to freak out. And so if you were texting me and you're like, MC. I have stomach pain, I'm throwing up, I don't have the stomach bug, I don't have food poisoning, something's going on. And I'm like, Sam, I think you have appendicitis, let's go to the emergency room. And you're like, no, I hate the emergency room, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna start lighting up, like freaking out, panic. You're gonna die, I'm sure of it. These aren't even conscious thoughts anymore. That then doesn't mean that you have to change the way you exist. What, mean, what this means is that there's something here to heal and there's something to integrate. So I need to figure out why I'm having such a strong response, which took me a really long time, even though that seems like a really obvious connection. And two, we have to figure out what's comfortable in the dynamic for both of us, right? It's not, a trigger doesn't mean that now nobody else has autonomy. A trigger means here's a thing. How are we gonna work with that thing? So I might say to you, okay, look, you know, you don't like going to the doctor and it really freaks me out when you have these symptoms and you don't go to the doctor. Can you not tell me? Or will you, can we do one physical a year? Will you promise me that? Right. 
Like, and then you have to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable not telling you the details, but I'll do the physical. It's a negotiation. It's not tyranny. Trigger doesn't equal tyranny. That's tearing relationships apart. I see it with clients all the time. We have to stop. Yeah, I don't think I'm I'm guilty of that too. It's like I'm feeling extreme emotions and so I'm trying to convey like I am feeling extreme emotions, but yet I'm going, you're triggering, like you are triggering me when really it's like I'm... I'm actually the one with the problem. Right. And I need help. Like the problem is coming from here and I can't necessarily like integrate it without someone else. So one of the things that I remember, and I remember us getting into like a, I think like a heated discussion on this because you, part of the work that you followed is a really failed exposure model with veterans. Yeah. Prolonged exposure therapy. Prolonged exposure therapy, yeah. which is not about what I'm going to talk about. Right. But what I'm going to talk about is about the kind of classical principles of classic exposure yes. therapy. Of like, if if somebody is terrified of the outdoors, you yes. might you might walk to the door threshold together. Yep. And go, okay, tell me how you feel. Do you mm-hmm. feel like dying? You, you know, do you feel like? But that when somebody makes a choice. Mm-hmm. It is very different than when somebody's not making a choice to confront. Yeah. So when I when I choose to mm-hmm. open up my email with 500 emails, 80 of which require yeah. really thoughtful responses, yeah. it is very different than the suffering I experience when I just glance at it and then ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some amount of exposure is necessary for integration. So we can't really isolate that word and say, like, that exposure is bad. Peter Levine talks about pendulation when it comes to trauma healing, which just means like kind of like what it sounds like a pendulum swings back and forth. You swing into the traumatic memory, the experience, whatever is causing you anxiety. This also works for OCD and some phobias. And then you come back out to safety and you go back in and then you come back out and you go back in. You can do this narratively. You can do this physically, like you're mentioning going to the door and not opening it and then going to the door and opening it and then putting one foot out and then putting two feet out and then standing for one minute and then, you know, so on and so on. Um, That is necessary for trauma healing. Prolonged exposure therapy, I'm, you know, I've written a lot about this and I haven't got, I'm kind of waiting for the hammer to come down because nobody has really noticed, but is torture. And it's a modality, it's the gold standard for veterans right now. So when someone comes into the VA, this is with PTSD, this is the gold standard treatment. And prolonged exposure therapy looks something like this. You and I are sitting here, right? I'm the clinician, you're the patient. And I ask you to close your eyes and imagine the worst thing that happened during deployment, the biggest trauma, and talk it in as much detail as possible. We record this session. I make you go home and listen to it over and over and over again by yourself. Then you come back the next day and you re or the next session and you retell the story. And if you miss any details, I stop you and you start over. And we, over time, the theory is built on this idea that with repeated exposure, that the the stimulus won't cause that same response. And so in a very crude way, it is effective. The theory holds up. But what the researchers haven't talked about is that over 50% of the people in the protocol drop out. Most of that 50% become suicidal. But it got a lot of funding and so the American Psychological Association and the government is very like pro prolonged exposure therapy because it's supposed to work very quickly. And when it does work, it does work for some people, it does work really quickly. The problem is that when it doesn't work, it makes you want to die. And I think we should pay attention. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. No. So yeah. that's, I think, maybe when you were talking about exposure and we were getting into a heated discussion, I think that's probably why. <laughs> okay. 
But yeah, some exposure is necessary for integration. You can't integrate something you don't look at. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's part of the process, just maybe not in that extreme. Yeah. Not exposure boot camp. Right. Right. And right. there are clinicians, I'm sure, that that do prolonged exposure therapy in an incredibly kind, attuned manner, but some of them don't. And so I think we should stop until we figure that out. When you thought about being here today, mm-hmm. what did you not want to leave having not talked about? Number one, you're not broken. Me specifically or everyone? Everyone. That makes me feel less special. <laughs> you're not broken, Sam. <laughs> Number two, the trauma response is a strength response. Three, we haven't really talked much about this. You can get a lot of mastery over that automatic response once you tune in and understand what it's doing. And so part of what the book does is give you tools at every chapter. So the book is broken up into case studies, education, context, and then tools. So what can you actually do in order to start feeling better right now? What can you actually do? so many things you can regulate the nervous system this is something that we don't teach people and so when your nervous system you can't get rid of the automatic default responses fight flight freeze those are built in what you can do is learn how to intervene on them when they pop up in inconvenient moments and so if you learn a little bit more about what the barometer is telling you then you can intervene more quickly so there's two methods of regulating the nervous system one is top down which is when you use your brain, you kind of manually force blood flow and electrical activity into areas of the brain that have become disconnected because you're having a trauma response or a panic attack. Believe it or not, the best way to do this is Tetris because it's a game that requires an incredible, it makes an incredible bid on your prefrontal cortex, which then pulls a bunch of blood flow and electrical activity into the rational part of your brain and away from the fear center. And there's tons of different tools that are top-down tools. I talk about some of them in the book. Narrative therapy is a good example. There's some exercises you can do there. Tetris is another one. And then the other method is bottom-up regulation. And so you use the body to calm the nervous system by activating the vagus nerve, which is responsible for the rest response. So diaphragmatic breathing is one example of that. And yoga, walking, anything rhythmic will kind of do the same thing. Basically, what you're doing is hitting reset on the rhythm in your body. And over time, 20 minutes or so, that gives the fear center the message that there's no need to continue pumping stress hormones. So there's lots of exercises. Some of them I made up completely and have used with clients and that are really fun. Some of them have to do with the hope circuit, which is really fun. But yeah. You'll get lots of tools about how to intervene when you're triggered. Wow. Yeah. I can't wait to dive into this book with Thank you. Thank you. Me too. You can join by going to alchemycoaching.life. Yes. Or you can join our community, patreon.com slash howtohuman, and we'll do a crossover. Yes. We'll do some sort of crossover event yes. together. Yeah, a book. A the book. first of, of many. Yeah. I actually think you and I should host the next Square One, A Sacred Ground. Oh. <gasps> Isn't oh, it? I would love yeah, that. You should take the, you should co-captain that with me. Yes, Because that's do something that. that I would love to live and I would love your experience. Yes. Building an event for people who really feel like they're starting over. Oh my gosh, yes. So that's so near and dear to me. It is sacred ground. I uh, would love to ground you a little bit, do a little coaching with yeah. you, okay? So you close your eyes. Okay. And I want you to take some nice deep vagus nerve breaths, <laughs> stretching your belly out. <laughs> Go on, stay with me. Okay. Okay couple more couple more deep breaths and i want you to imagine that you from 20 years from now Mm. just steps into the studio and reese and i step out when we see her we recognize that you two need a moment together Mm. and you're just going to take a minute to just look at her 
What does this woman look like from 20 years in the future? <laughs> How's her posture? Mm. What's she wearing? Are her clothes cool? Oh, her clothes are super cool. Okay, stay with me. Close your okay, eyes. Okay. Picture her. Mm-hmm. Picture the smile lines on her face and the mm-hmm. new scars she's picked up on her hands or mm-hmm. whatever you see. And I want you to ask this version of yourself. What is being asked of me? Oh. And just pay attention. Then you can share what you hear. What, says, what is being asked of me? Mm-hmm. Can I say? Yeah. She says, oh, honey, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I think you're on a pretty good path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hell getting here, but here we are. Thanks for being such a good friend to me. Oh, thank you. You've already promised to be a no matter what friend. No matter what? No matter what mess I make. No matter what. Okay, same to you. I fucking mean it. No matter what. Should we talk about the purple dildo? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What what is this, MC? Okay. <laughs> I was this is something I was really hoping you were gonna forget about. So No, it was like the first conversation we had and I've never it was forgot. Not the first conversation. It was early on. It was the first memorable conversation yeah. we had. So I was recording this book, the audiobook at Sam's studio, which was a life changing experience in many ways. And I was having <laughs> insane dreams every night about what was gonna go wrong. And you had mentioned wanting to have me on the podcast. And I was like, oh, man, that's exciting. I can't wait. I'm super into it. And I went home that night. And then I had a dream that we were sitting here (laughs) in these chairs. And from behind, it's we were actually reversed. But from behind your chair, in the very beginning of the podcast, you pull out this giant neon pink purple dildo. And you look me straight in the face. And you're like, do you want to talk about this? I wish I had one so badly. I tried to arrange one to be here, yeah. But I don't actually have one. We should have done this. I don't either. Which is the point of the dream, which was that we were live for some reason. Like this was like, you couldn't get rid of it. And you were saying, it was like we were on, you know, TV. And you were saying like, this is your your big purple dildo. And I was like, Sam, it's not. Like, it's really not. Like, if it was, I would I would tell you. I don't, I have shame about that, but it's not. I don't have one. It's not, it's not mine. And you're like, come on. And we were live, and it was such an intense, hilarious dream. And I had known you for three days, two yeah. days. <laughs> and Reese was there too. And I was like, I had, I, I had promised myself I wasn't going to tell you that. And then I told you because you're just someone that people tell things to. I know, but that's all. That's one of the first times where well, well, like, all right, this is a cool person. <laughs> like, this is not like a a dream you'd normally tell people about. No. And, yeah. It's so weird in so many ways because it wasn't a sex dream. There's a safety in it, though. Yeah. You know, when you're with somebody that you just know that they're just going to tell you all the things. Yeah, totally, you know? totally. And, and I think I have theories about the dream, too. Okay, I've thought about it a lot. Do you yeah. have theories? No. No, <laughs> really? I thought it was just hilarious. It was, I think, one of the reasons that you came into my life. You said that you you called for me. I think I called for you. I sourced you. you sourced, yeah. I sourced you. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because you're so, you're such a penetrating energy. I know. I'm the dildo. You're the dildo. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's because the nicest you... thing anyone said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the big purple dildo. <laughs> Isn't that like your favorite color too? That like neon pink, pink purple? Pink, yeah. 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 I didn't even know that. This time. year it's gone to yellow. Okay. Yeah, but pink for many pink, years. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they make yellow dildos as well. <laughs> they do, but it's, it's not as good as the pink dildo. It's not as good as no. that. Pink's but a it, classic. It's a classic. But I think that you, it's like when I met you, you were like, without saying it, you were just like blink, blink, game on. Yeah. And it was like, okay, 
we're going. I don't know where, but so yeah, that's what I think the dream is about. I'm so excited to figure out where we are going. Me too. And I, I love wait. you. I love you too. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. What did I tell you about this episode? I think I'm probably going to have to listen to it a few times. This program as a whole is starting to become more of a community project than anything else. And if you would like to join our community for any amount, you can join us at our Patreon. We do a Monday night regular community gathering. We've been doing study halls lately, and I'd love to see you show up. Seriously, everyone's invited. We have not had any issues with them being too crowded. If you like this conversation, if you think that you would fit in in a conversation like this, please show up on our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash howtohuman. Or you could find us on Instagram, which is hellohumans.co. Or if you would like our help on a creative project of yours, you could visit our studio website, square the number one dot studio. And we'd love to help you with your project. Thanks and have a great day.